0: This little book of Ruth is the story of a Jewish woman who left her home in Bethlehem with her husband and two sons and went to the land of Moab. Due to a famine, they were searching for bread. Her husband and her two sons died in Moab, but not before each of the sons had got married. And then Ruth, uh, Naomi, sorry, having heard that the famine was over, Back home, that there was bread there again, determines to return to her her hometown of Bethlehem. And of her two daughters-in-law, Ruth insists that she will return with Naomi. She will make Naomi's God her God. And her people will be Ruth's people. And so they've returned. And uh, God is going to provide for Naomi and Ruth in a most wonderful way, in a way that neither of those women could have expected on their journey back home. And uh, last week we saw how, um, having met Boaz, she was, Ruth was gleaning for the scraps in one of uh, the fields owned by Boaz, and they met each other. And then Naomi sent Ruth uh, to see if Boaz would be the one who would take them under his wing... And we'll consider this fourth chapter in uh, two sessions, God willing. Uh, Next week, as we conclude the series, uh, we'll take one final look at some of the ways in which this uh, wonderful little short book points us to the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to consider providence, promises and prophecies. Well, at least that's how it's looking at the moment. It could have changed by next Sunday, but that's how it's looking right now. Today we're going to concentrate on the actions taken by Boaz in these first 12 verses and consider the lessons that we can learn from him in the way that he relied completely upon the word of God. And that's the theme of this message, relying upon the word of God. Boaz relied completely upon the word of God to resolve this issue with Ruth. Now last week if you were here we looked at the passages in Leviticus 25 and in Deuteronomy 25 which explained for us first of all the conversation that that took place between Ruth and Boaz back in chapter 3 that's from verses 9 to 13 and those passages in Leviticus and Deuteronomy also explain the actions that Boaz is now taking at the beginning of chapter 4. So if you weren't here last week, you might want to read through chapter 25 of Leviticus and Deuteronomy. And you will find there the passages which clearly refer to this circumstance here. Law that God had laid down for his people. In the law that he'd given through his servant Moses to the people of Israel. God had provided a means by which families might retain their land and inheritance in the land of promise, even though any kind and all manner of trial and hardship might have taken their little parcel of land and maybe even some or all of their property out of their hands. Life has many ups and downs, and it did for God's people in the land of Canaan all those years ago. And sometimes, in order to survive, families would have to sell off some or all of their land, or property, or borrow money against it. Or during times of real desperation, even sell themselves into slavery, just to be able to exist. But every 50 years was a year of jubilee. It was a time of great rejoicing. Now we didn't mention that bit last week. But every 50 years. All the land and property. That had been part of transactions like that. Was all returned to the original owner. And slaves were set free. But additionally. At any other time. Family members had the right. To purchase back those things. On behalf of their relatives. So if you could find another family member who was willing to pay the price and buy back what had been yours, in other words, redeem it, that close relative could redeem those items for you. And that's where we get this phrase, the kinsman redeemer. A close relative who could redeem back that which had originally been yours. And that's what they could do. And that's the topic that Ruth and Boaz spoke about back in chapter 3. And that's the issue now which is guiding the actions that Boaz takes at the beginning of chapter 4. And another application of this kinsman redeemer function was for a widow to be taken as a wife by her deceased husband's brother. In other words, her brother-in-law could marry her. This would mean that she and her children, if she had any, they could retain their family status. They would have security, future, and inheritance. And if that widow then bore a a son, that son could take the name of his father, and his father's name continued in Israel. So it's a wonderful provision that God had given his people within the law that he'd passed on to Moses. It's these provisions in God's law... Which are guiding the actions of Boaz. And which now direct his actions at the beginning of chapter 4. Naomi and Elimelech had sold up. When they moved to Moab. So she has nothing of her own. Now she's back in Bethlehem. She has nothing to share with Ruth. They're both in need. And Boaz is prepared to do something about it. But... He is going to rely completely upon the word of God to do it. And I have three points. The first is this. Obeying the word of God completely. Obeying the word of God completely. Now here's a little exercise you might want to do. I'm sure most of us have more than one Bible we can lay our hands on at home. Get two Bibles just for ease of reference. Open one Bible at Deuteronomy 25 and lay it alongside the second Bible open at Ruth chapter 4 and read them through and you'll immediately notice something very striking Boaz follows the law to the letter The city gate that's mentioned that was the place where public business was done and It was the place, actually, that acted as a public courtroom to resolve disputes. Boaz takes a seat at the city gate. Now, that tells us that he himself was a fairly senior figure within the community. That he was actually permitted to sit there. He was one of the elder statesmen and more senior citizens within that city to sit in that place. A young novice would not be able to do that. Why has he gone there? Because that is the only place where he can pursue this matter in accordance with God's law. And his faithful obedience is rewarded. Who should come along but the very relative he needs to speak to? Now, of course, we need to be careful. This is not a guarantee from the Bible that if you're obedient, everything will just fall into your lap and slot into place in your life. There is no such guarantee in the Bible. But it is nevertheless interesting and encouraging to see that on this day, God does reward the faithful obedience of Boaz as just the right man happens to walk by. And Boaz sees him. And can call him over. This other man. Who is a nearer relative. To Naomi and Ruth. Who gets first shout on the deal. Now the word translated friend. It says Boaz says come aside friend sit down. Well actually the word in, in the Hebrew literally means so and so. If Boaz was a scouser, he'd probably have shouted, hey mate, come here. (laughs) But that's the the sense of what it was that Boaz shouted. Come over here, we need to talk. And all through this, this other man remains completely anonymous. We have no idea who he was. And many commentators suggest that it's because he was not worthy of being named. Because he would not fulfil the duty that God laid before him. And so such a man remains nameless in the word of God. Well, that's the opinion of many commentators, and I think there's probably something in that. And then Boaz summons ten elders. That was the minimum number that were required to come and witness the things that were about to take place. And Boaz, as we saw in the reading, he explains the issue to his relative, lays before him the responsibility that this man has as the closest relative And asks him if he's going to redeem Naomi's land. And he says he will. Now we can only guess what kind of expression came on the face of Boaz when the man said yes. And perhaps the kind of emotion that Boaz was having to suppress. But Boaz seems to remain quite composed. And he continues to explain further that the redemption would not just involve Naomi's land. Which perhaps this unnamed man simply saw as a shrewd deal. But he must also marry Ruth. And he would be responsible for any subsequent children that they have. And suddenly the man's face drops. Perhaps he's already married and decided long ago that one wife's enough for any man. I don't know. We can't be certain. But he does say it will be ruining my own inheritance. Now, we can't be absolutely sure what he means by that. Maybe he feared that his own family are going to receive a smaller slice of the cake if they have to share it with Ruth and any other children. Well, whatever it was, this other man is now just not so committed to the idea. And he decides to turn the offer down. And he refuses, point blank. And he hands the issue over to Boaz. And he even does this bizarre thing with the one sandal, which seems a little strange to us, but it was kind of like signing the contract. It was a public statement that everyone could see. All these witnesses who were watching and listening, they saw the sandal being taken off the foot and handed over. And that signified this is a done deal. It's like putting the rubber stamp on it. It's legally binding. And even the sandal is mentioned in Deuteronomy. Do you see how Boaz follows the letter of God's law very carefully, very precisely? Now, it's true, of course, that God's Old Testament people were given many very specific and detailed and sometimes intricate laws that they had to keep Many of those things we no longer have to worry about. Since the coming of Christ, there are many issues in the Old Testament in terms of rituals and ceremonies that are no longer applicable to us. And some of them uh, were just uh, national civil law for Israel. And it's also true that the teaching of Jesus and his apostles in the New Testament, in the main is far less detailed and prescriptive than that kind of old testament law that we read focuses instead much more on spiritual principles and matters of the heart so for example reading the sermon on the mount which is full of practical instruction and application when you read the sermon on the mount it's not like reading the book of leviticus reads very differently feels very differently uh, and do you remember that section that I quoted last week? It's in Matthew tra- chapter 5, which is in the first part of this sermon that Jesus is giving. at Verse uh, 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you not to resist even an evil person. Whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you, take away your tunic. Let him have your cloak also. Whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. And so on. I hope you can see there that kind of instruction that Jesus gives in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is not instructing you to behave exactly and precisely like that with every single person you meet. How many coats does a person have to give away? And some of you would end up with very red cheeks... If Jesus was suggesting you have to have that kind of exchange with every single person you ever come across. No, we can see very clearly that Jesus there is teaching a principle. He's outlining an important issue of the heart and of a Christ-like character and gives three illustrations to help us understand it. Much of the the instruction in the New Testament is of that type although there are certain sections in the epistles, you read, for example, through 1 Corinthians, read through James, and there are specific problems and errors which are confronted head-on in very direct and clear ways and specific directions and instructions are given where it's appropriate for the apostles to do so. But whether it's fine detailed law like Boaz had to deal with in the book of Ruth or whether it's these more general principles of life in the kingdom of God and the issue of our heart and soul and mind this is the word of God and the commands of Christ if we love him are to be obeyed The word of God is still to be obeyed completely. And of course we have this great understanding that the law of God for Christian believers gets written in our hearts. But Boaz is an excellent example of how a godly believer treats any direction and instruction that they find in the word of God. He follows it. Completely. And secondly, he obeys the word of God swiftly. He does it swiftly. We can see that he hasn't dithered or delayed in his obedience to the word. What is said in chapter 4 verse 1 is said immediately after verse 18 of chapter 3. And this conveys to us that it was on the same day that Boaz went and sat at the gate He didn't wait and Naomi had said to Ruth, this man's going to sort it today. I have every confidence in him. And he obeyed the word of God swiftly. You see, Boaz hasn't waited and tried to weigh up his odds and chances before deciding whether or not to obey the word. Should I follow the word or should I not? Should I go that way or is there another way? Can I think of something else? He obeys the word swiftly. Now, let me just say we recognize, of course, that obeying God's word sometimes requires us to wait. When Boaz first sat down at the gate, he didn't know how long he'd have to wait. That sitting and waiting was part of his obedience. But you should never wait to decide if you're going to be obedient. Do you see the difference between the two? Boaz was immediately obedient, but in his obedience he had to sit and wait. But he didn't sit and wait To decide whether he was going to be obedient. His obedience was swift. He went straight to the gate. And he waited. Let me just say something about the issue of guidance that many Christians struggle with. Some Christians worry unnecessarily about the issue of guidance... How how is God going to guide me? Asking the question, what does God want me to do in any circumstance, whatever it might be? I I remember reading something somewhere, I don't know where it was, very interesting, very helpful. That during the era of the Puritans, just after the Reformation, when they were prodigious producers of written works guidance was a topic that very few of them ever wrote about. And it's believed that the reason for that is because for most of them, the issue of guidance wasn't a problem. It never caused them any worry. Because they understood that by getting into the word of God, they would discover all the guidance they needed. They understood that the word of God would guide them and they allowed the word of God to guide them. And so the issue of guidance really wasn't an issue at all for them because they they trusted the word of God to do it. You see in the word they found a sufficiency. They found a sufficient revelation of God's will. Now, God doesn't tell us everything about Himself. He doesn't tell us everything we might like to know. But the revelation of His will is sufficient. And they discovered in the Bible sufficient instruction, sufficient commandments, and likewise sufficient warnings, sufficient principles, sufficient promises. And in God's word, they found sufficient examples. Good ones to follow. Bad ones to avoid. They had all the guidance they needed in the all-sufficiency of the scriptures. And because of that, the topic of guidance often wasn't really the issue that many Christians want to make it today. And you see... If you will take the time and if you will make the effort to dig, you too will find the scriptures to be all sufficient so that you can obey them swiftly and you can obey them completely because this is the infallible, inerrant word of God. It will never mislead you It will never misguide you. It will never take you astray. So we see in the example Boaz gives us, he obeys the word of God completely. He obeys the word of God swiftly. And thirdly, he obeys the word of God unconditionally. By this I mean that Boaz did not try to manipulate or twist or distort God's word in any way so that it might be more favourable for him. We don't find Boaz saying to himself, yes, I know what the Bible says, but if I could perhaps look at it like this, or if I could interpret it more like that, Or if I could just pretend I didn't read that part at all, then maybe, maybe I'm more likely to get the outcome I'm after. There's none of that with Boaz. He takes the Bible as he finds it. He takes God's word as he finds it. And he obeys it unconditionally. he actually makes himself very vulnerable, doesn't he? The unknown man says yes first time. What if he'd said yes second time as well? Boaz is prepared to make himself vulnerable in his obedience to the word of God. There are ten elders listening, observing, witnessing, and who would ensure that the word was upheld and that the law was upheld? They acknowledged their role in the deal in verse 11. We are witnesses. Now, having said that, I think we can fairly safely say that Boaz had faith that somehow this was all going to work out. I think Boaz just had that assurance from God that this was going to work out. But he obeyed the word of God unconditionally. I think we have to conclude that Boaz was ready to accept that if this nearer kinsman said he would redeem Naomi and marry Ruth Boaz was going to have to let him do it despite what his heart was telling him he was ready to obey the word unconditionally am i or you It seems to me that for Boaz, obedience was more important than the outcome. That's the theme that many Old Testament characters present us with. Abraham, who had no idea what he was getting his family into when he uprooted them from Haran and set off following God. But for him, obedience was more important than the final outcome. For Noah, for Gideon, for David, for Daniel, obedience was more important than the outcome. Now they knew that God was in the outcome. They trusted that God would use the outcome. But at the time, when they're faced with decisions, obedience was more important. You know, there's even a sense in which that was true in the Lord Jesus Christ as well. Now, of course, he, he's God and he knew why he'd come into this world and he knew what the outcome would be. He knew and understood what the outcome of his sufferings and death would be. He knew what it was he'd come to do and accomplish and he knew what he must go through in order to accomplish it. But do you remember there was a time when, faced with the horrors of the cross in Gethsemane, he prayed to his father asking if another way might be found. Why? Why? Because in those few short hours in the garden, the outcome of his arrest, the agonies of body and soul that he was about to endure, the outcome was in danger of threatening his obedience in his human nature. The dilemma that Jesus faced was obedience, the outcome of which would be his suffering and death. Or disobedience in order to avoid it. But you see, obedience to his father triumphed. Your will be done. Obedience. Obedience in the garden was more important than the horror of what lay before him. Of course, he understood the outcome. He understood the final glory. But for those few hours in the garden, even for Christ, there's no temptation you'll go through that he cannot sympathize with you know. And of course, in thinking about obedience to God's word, I wonder if you, like me, find yourself with some considerable inner turmoil. Because I know that I can't possibly be obedient the way I should be. I know I can't possibly be obedient to the level and standard that God requires. And some of you are sitting there thinking, obey God's word completely? Just obey it so swiftly? To obey it so unconditionally? And all kinds of turmoil comes into your heart. And all kinds of doubts come into your mind. I long to be able to obey the, the word of God completely. But I can't. And actually we can be certain that as good as Boaz was. He didn't fulfill God's law perfectly either. Not at every point. And I long to be able to obey the word of God Swiftly. But I have so many weaknesses, so many fears, so many desires and ambitions and pride that keeps getting in the way. And lots of those things prevent me from obeying God unconditionally as well. So as good as those three headings might sound, it can all seem so hopeless. And it would be. If God hadn't done something about it because he has you see there is one man who has kept God's word completely one man who at no point in his life at no time in his life even in the horrors of the darkness of gethsemane was found not being obedient to God's word at no time was Christ found to be disobedient And so, you see, in one sense, Christ was keeping God's word so swiftly, it was constant. There was never a time when he wasn't in obedience to the word of God. There was never a situation in his daily living when he wasn't obeying the word of God. So swiftly would he do it, it was almost like it was one constant thing. It's like when you hear... There are certain animals and their hearts beat so very, 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 very fast it just sounds like a continuous noise. You have to slow it right down to hear the individual beats. The obedience of Christ was like that. So continuous, so swift, it's like one continuous sound rather than individual events. So fully and completely did he keep God's word one man who kept God's word unconditionally out of such pure love for his Father, the likes of which this world has never known. And his perfect obedience, even to the death of the cross, has, if you're a Christian, been credited to you as righteousness before the Father. The perfect obedience of Christ. Has been put to your account. All your disobedience has been laid on him. And he's borne the punishment for it at Calvary. And all his obedience now is counted as yours in the eyes of God. And you stand before God no longer under condemnation. And this risen Jesus now lives and dwells in you. Doesn't he? He does. And in your new life in Christ, as his new creation, with a new nature, a new heart, a new mind, you find that the law of God, which itself has been written in your heart, and you find that obedience to the word is now your great delight. And in Christ, more and more you can do it. In him, relying upon the word of God, obeying it completely, obeying it swiftly, (coughs) obeying it unconditionally, is something which the Christian in their soul cries out, yes. Because that is the work of Christ in you. We're going to sing a hymn as we close this evening.